Well, we're going to continue our study in the book of Exodus this morning. We'll be in chapter 4, starting at verse 18. And if you're using the Pew Bibles there in front of you, that should be on page 47. Page 47. As you can see, we're going to be going through a large chunk this week and, Lord willing, next week as well. So I'll read the first section and we'll read the other sections as we get to them. We'll start by reading 4, 18 through the end, actually just through verse 26, 4, 18 through 26, what we will do. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all those who want to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go, so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At the lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. This is the word of the Lord. Well, at the end of last year, during one of the busiest travel seasons, Southwest Airlines melted down. They had almost 16,000 flights that were canceled. Do you know how bad it got? This was stunning as I read a report on this. It got so bad that one article explained how Southwest passengers stranded in one city on Christmas Day because their flight had been canceled were under threat of being arrested by the police for loitering. Stranded passengers didn't want to leave the secure area where their flight had just been canceled, desperately trying to call and get a hold of somebody to get a new ticket. And worse yet, it was the Southwest agents who called the police to come and get the loiterers out of their area. One journalist, right, journalist rightly commented, The executives of Southwest Airlines can take comfort in this much at least. It still isn't a crime to run a business incompetently. (laughs) Southwest continues to lead the U.S. in delayed flights. And yet, it didn't stop me from booking my next flight with them. Because the price was right. Let's hope I just get to where I want to go. Well, I bring up delays because I'm sure if you've done much travel at all, you have experienced delays. And some have long, plan-destroying delays, life-altering delays. I mean, we can get flustered with traffic, but flight delays, where you spent so much time prepping, that can really hurt. Well, as much as some of you probably have endured some of those things, my next comments are not meant to re-infuriate you. This is what's called a trigger warning I'm about to ruthlessly mock the idea of delayed flights. Courtesy of a uh, comedian who did a bit a number of years ago on one of the late night shows, he said, you know, people talk about airline delays. Delays, really? 
New York to L.A. in five hours? Delays? It used to take 30 years to make that trip. You were a different group when you got there. Some people would have died. Others would have been born. And we have delays. Then he mocks the people complaining about delays. We had to wait for 20 minutes to board. And then, sitting there, 40 more minutes they made us sit and wait for takeoff. To which he responds, what happened next? What happened after the delay? Did you partake in the miracle of flight, you non-contributing zero? Delays. Really? Well, let me land this plane, pun intended. Even the worst possible stories of flight cancellations with lasting impacts on people's lives are temporary. I mean, delays, by definition, are temporary. So even the gal who missed her wedding due to a Southwest cancellation had the wisdom to say that while she and her fiancé were devastated, she knew others were dealing with something far worse. You see, we modern folk can get upset. We can get so impatient and discontent with the slightest of delays. And yet our passage this morning is about a long delay. You see, God's mysterious plan included a long, long delay before delivering his people. Already since the time Moses was born and something special was seen about him, 80 more years of delay had passed. Last week, we saw God calling Moses, this failed deliverer, turned murderer, fled to be a shepherd, and God explained to him that he would use Moses to deliver his people. And yet, even as God calls and sends Moses this time, we are going to find, yet again, deliverance delayed. That's the title of the sermon this morning. And we'll walk through this uh, passage with the three points, centrality of the sons, claiming of the servants, and confirmation of the scent. The idea, the main idea and argument of this passage is this. God's deliverance delayed does not mean his redemption is ruined. One more time. God's deliverance delayed does not mean his redemption is ruined. Now, I opened by reading this first little section, uh, and I titled it The Centrality of Sons, because I didn't know if you caught the three little stories. Each of them had something to do with sons. First, Moses goes to his father-in-law, so he's a son-in-law, and he asks for permission to stop being a shepherd so he can go and see how his people are being told by God that no one's looking for him anymore. And Moses is pictured as a good father. He puts his wife and sons on a donkey for this trek back to Egypt. Then in the middle scene, Yahweh refers to Israel as his firstborn son, his corporate son. But before we get there, God tells Moses again, he repeats what he told him, that he is to go before Pharaoh and he's to perform the three wonders, but that God will harden Pharaoh's heart so he will not let the people go. In other words, God is telling Moses in advance, deliverance will be delayed. Now, Lord willing, next week during the plagues, we'll spend more time considering the theological implications of God's hardening, God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Today, I want to see two practical implications, because that's what the text is focusing on this week. First, God tells Moses before he begins, he will harden Pharaoh's heart to guarantee a delay, another delay. 
which is to say God is warning Moses, don't get discouraged. It's going to be delayed. There will be more waiting yet to come. The delay is God's way, is what he's saying. This is his plan and his timing from beginning to end. Another important practical implication is that God declaring he would harden Pharaoh's heart is bound up with a key understanding of who Pharaoh was. You see, in the Egyptian religion, Pharaoh was the incarnation of two Egyptian gods, of Horus and Ra. And and so Pharaoh is God on earth. He is God incarnate. And the Egyptians believed that Pharaoh's heart was the all-controlling factor in both history and society. They believed it was Pharaoh's heart that turned the heart of the king. They believed it was Pharaoh's heart who decided who lived and died and how things went and came. They held that the hearts of the gods of Ra and Horus were sovereign over everything, and hence Pharaoh was their lived example. His heart was thought to be sovereign. But God declares to Moses, Yahweh will harden Pharaoh's heart. This then is kicking off the battle of the gods, which will play out through the rest of the plagues. And this one true sovereign Lord, Yahweh, declares that he is the only true sovereign. And then, this is what Moses is to declare to Pharaoh. Look again at verse 22 and 23. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh, the Lord, says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Uh, So in other words, this battle of the gods is being played out over the sons. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, we remember that that it was Pharaoh who was seeking to murder God's sons, the the firstborn of all the Israelites. He even enlisted all of Egypt as a corporate seed of the, the serpent to throw the sons into the Nile. God is saying, you killed my son, and I will kill your son. It's God bringing about justice. And in this defining of God being the sovereign who can change hearts and who will bring out justice and who will bring justice for the death of his son. That is the context which we have to have in mind to understand that really weird couple of verses, 24 through 26. Now, the NIV here is, unfortunately, it's it's not actually a translation as much as it is actually an interpretation. So the NIV, you heard me when I read it, is two times it says Moses' name. That Moses was the one who was struck down, and and she threw the foreskin at Moses' feet. But that's not in the Hebrew. The Hebrew woodenly would be translated like this. And it was on the way at the lodging place, Yahweh met him and sought to kill him. And Zipporah took a flint knife and cut off the foreskin of her son, and she touched it to his feet, and she said, you are a mm, hatandamim to me. I'll come back and translate that in a minute. So in other words, the NIV takes two of those he's and inserts the name Moses. They have interpreted it for you rather than just translated it for you. And part of that is because that's a very common view. Maybe it's the most common view in this passage uh, is that it's Moses is being struck with some sort of an illness or something. And, and in the midst of, this, uh, of his illness, all of a sudden Zipporah either figures it out or God tells her. And so she goes and circumcises their son. And in so doing, you know, she's a Midian. She doesn't like this circumcision thing. So she gets mad, throws the foreskin at his feet and says, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. Uh, but she performed the ritual, and, and it spared Moses' life. Is that familiar? I, I would think probably that's the majority view. 
Well, come to find out there's like a ton of views about how to understand this passage. And there's really great scholars who hold to that view. In digging into this, though, I actually think there's a better reading. And, and the better reading is to see that he, and not as Moses, but as their son who wasn't circumcised. The main reason for this is because Genesis 17, 14 specifically said that the son who is not circumcised will be cut off. It's all part of the pun. You cut off the foreskin of your son or your son is cut off. Nowhere does it say that the parents will suffer for the lack of circumcising the kid. It's always the kid. So that, that seems like it should cause us to think that this is probably the son who's here on the verge of death. A second reason why I think that it's probably the son is because of that phrase I didn't translate, the hatan damim. Yeah. Most English Bibles reference it bridegroom of blood or something similar. But remember, Zipporah is Midian, which means she probably was speaking in her Midianite language. And that's why I think the NIV is helpful, and it shows us the next verse has parentheses around it. And it says, when she said hatan damim, or bridegroom of blood, she was talking about circumcision. In other words, Moses is translating it for the Hebrew readers. There's something about that hatan damim that a Hebrew reader would have gone, what is that referring to? And so Moses explains it. Hatan damim is referring to circumcision. Remember, she's also the daughter of a priestess. And, come to find out, Midians did circumcise their men, likely just when they were older. So what if the scene goes like this? That... Zipporah says, let's just wait to circumcise him until he gets older. And then he gets struck sick by the Lord, the text says. And she says, oh, nope, it's time now. And so she circumcises him, and she says these weird words to us, hatan damim, and that then is the circumcision rite. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, Hebrew here, actually translates it, I think, right. It says this, the blood of the circumcision of my son stands. That's the way the, the Septuagint translates it. So, backing up, in other words, I think the scene here is this, is that Moses and Zipporah had not circumcised their son, and the son was going to be cut off by the Lord. And so she circumcises him and says, this, I've done this ritual, he's in the covenant community, may he be spared. And that's exactly what happens, the Lord spares him. Now I know, I'm nerdy, and so all the language stuff is fun for me, and you're all thinking, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? Well, let me explain We've just seen three little stories about sons, right? We saw Moses going back to his people and God saying, your people are my son, my firstborn son. And now we get the sign of who is included in God's son. Uh, which is to say, the, 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 the act of circumcision was that means by which God marked off who his son was. It was all the circumcised boys and then later their wives and daughters, and their circumcised boys after them. It was a marker. So here's what I think is so important. It's so weird to us as modern Westerners, because rituals and company inclusion seem so strange to us, but not to the Lord. The Lord was going to cut off Moses and Zipporah's son because he had not received the mark of inclusion into the covenant community. Now, our individualism gets riled up about this. We, we don't like it. First, we don't like rituals to begin with. But then this idea of, of marking off God's people. But friend, that's what the text says. Circumcision was the physical mark that marked off God's people. And yes, there are differences between the old covenant and the new covenant. But whatever you do, don't try and treat this text like, well, that was an old covenant thing, and God doesn't do that in the new covenant. 
the signs of the new covenant aren't as important? Because 1 Corinthians 11, Paul specifically says, some of you have not handled the ongoing sign of the covenant well, and you've died because of it. Just to say, in both Old and New Covenant, God is so concerned about his covenant signs and seals that people have died from abusing them or ignoring them. For that's the crystal clear testimony. And God right here is marking off his people because he's going to deliver his son. So his son has a mark. Now, real quick, the old covenant sign was circumcision under Abraham and continued under Moses. And then the Passover is that ongoing rite that all the circumcised men and only the circumcised men and their families could partake of the Passover. Well, in the new covenant, the sign is baptism. And then the ongoing sign is the Lord's Supper. So baptism is that sign of entrance into the covenant community. And the Lord's Supper is a sign of continuance in the covenant community. Now, here's the thing. I know people hear me and they go, you're Baptist pastors. You're so cranky about the Lord's Supper and baptism. Why do you make such a big deal about these things? Well, I hope you see, because God's word does. God is deeply concerned about his covenant signs and seals. And just for the record, don't take it from this Baptist. Take it from a dead, gone-to-be-with-the-Lord Anglican pastor. The scholar Motier, Alec Motier, he put it this way. That covenant signs on God's side, what God is doing through them, it shows the gifts and sealing of his promise. God uses them to say, these are mine. I mark them off from the world. Or as Jesus said, I have a flock. These are my flock. And God gave us a sign to mark off that flock. And then Motier continues. And he said, but on our side, these covenant signs, they are expressing that God is going to apply his promises to us, the receivers of those covenant signs. So Motier writes, covenant signs express covenant promises to covenant people. And then he goes on to explain why it is so dangerous to refuse God's covenant signs or to treat them lightly. He says, it is acting as if we had no need of God and his grace and his pledges. Because whether we understand it or like it, God has chosen to use those signs and seals of his covenant to mark off and seal his promises to his people. So again, Motier actually gets way spicier than that. I edited it down because I'm being nice. But if you struggle with this idea that God uses baptism in the Lord's Supper to mark off his people, I would just say this, friend. Study God's word carefully on this topic. Because isn't it possible, isn't it possible that our culture's radical individualism has shaped your thinking about these things maybe more than God's word? Isn't it possible that a particular church or Christian tradition you grew up in may have downplayed something God's word treats with the greatest of importance? Isn't it possible that your understanding of baptism in the Lord's Supper is far more bound up with your own personal life experiences rather than what the whole counsel of God says on this subject. If you give me enough time, I can show you the history and walk you through and show you when it was the churches started to downplay it more and more and more and why we inherited those things. They were turned into God's mark and God's seal of God's covenant community into a personal experience where it's me doing my personal thing. But friends, that is a radically new thing in the history of the church. But here's my final word on this for now. Don't take my word for it. 
I, I believe that the Bible-loving Christians in this word, if, if this makes you uncomfortable, don't take it from me. Study the text. God clearly takes signs of the covenant so serious, he's willing to kill somebody or go after them in this passage and in 1 Corinthians. I've never seen a passage in the Bible where somebody who refuses to debate millennial positions, comes at, God goes after them to kill them. But for the signs of the covenant, he does. So study the issue. If you want some resources, I'm, I'm happy to provide them. But here's what I would say. The intro of this section is showing us whom it is God is going to redeem. And God, first and foremost, is looking to redeem his son. Now, that's going to shift when we get through the passage. But it starts off by saying, these ones are mine. Deliverance is for them. Okay, we've seen how God marks off his people, calling Israel as his firstborn son. Now, we need to move into our second point, is claiming of the servants. We'll look at 4.27 through 5.23. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so they may hold a festival to be in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. And they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord, or he will strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. And then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from work. The same day, Pharaoh gave orders to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave driver and the overseers went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required for you each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. And Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, why, Lord, why? Have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? 
ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. I call this point claiming of servants because of the back and forth that is taking place. Yahweh, the Lord, has said, these are my people, my servants. They will go worship me, worship, serve. It's the same word in the Hebrew. So God is calling Israel to come and worship him, to be his servants. And yet Pharaoh is also making that call. Did you hear it in the section? Well, they show up and say to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. They may hold a festival to me. But Pharaoh's response is, I don't know Yahweh. Who's he? What does he have to do with me? I'm God here. He refuses. And not only does Pharaoh refuse, but then he says, clearly you're lazy. I mean, you, you've blown all this time dreaming up these dreams about these so-called Yahweh gods that you're going to go worship. No, you're going to work. And you're going to work harder. Because frankly, you just, you've been wasting time listening to fairy tales about fairy tale gods. So go get your own straw. It got even worse. Moses came to deliver, but deliverance was delayed. And here begins in official, the battle of the gods, as I mentioned before. But did you notice a couple things about this passage? Moses didn't quite get the messaging right. Did you catch that? First, Moses and Aaron go to the people and they do exactly what God says. Show them the three signs, and he shows the three signs to the elders. And how do the elders respond? They responded with worship, rightfully. Yes, this is right. Yahweh is coming. He is coming to deliver us, his people. And then it says, Moses goes with just Aaron to Pharaoh. Well, God had told him to take the elders too. So already Moses is a little off message. Next, he didn't say exactly what he said back in 318. Uh, he was supposed to say something different. And it gets even worse than that after he quite gets himself off on the wrong foot, and Pharaoh's response is, I don't know who Yahweh is. Who's Yahweh? Then he gets a little bit back on message, and he says, oh, well, you know, he's the God of the Hebrews, and, you know, he has to let us make a three-day journey into the wilderness. But then he gets off message yet again, and he says, and if you don't let us go sacrifice in the wilderness, he's going to bring plagues on us and bring a sword on us. <laughs> Moses has kind of failed as the prophet here. And so the question is, is it his failure why Pharaoh responds that way? Well, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. His plan is the one that matters. Moses' ad-libs certainly seem to cause problems. But no matter how far off message they got, what we know for sure is that Pharaoh was going to say no. God already told Moses he was going to say no. He warned him, don't get discouraged when deliverance is delayed. I'm going to harden his heart. But when he saw the people suffer, when he saw them experience the wrath of Pharaoh, Moses ends this whole section charging God. And that whole end, the last couple of verses we read, is that. It's, it's him charging God with wrong. So Pharaoh has reclaimed his servants. Well, Yahweh thinks they're his servants, but no, they're my servants. As a matter of fact, there's so many of them, you clearly need more work to do. And so that's what you see, this back and forth. Actually, there's a dueling thus says in this section. It begins with thus says Yahweh, and then the middle point, all of a sudden it's thus says Pharaoh, because Pharaoh believes that these are his servants. 
But it gets so bad on the suffering that the people are suffering, and then Pharaoh's uh, you know, overseers are beating Israelite foremans, as it were. So the Israelite foremans go back to Pharaoh, and they plead with him. Will you plead? And notice what they said there in verse 15. We are your servants. So much for worshiping Yahweh at the beginning of the chapter or the end of the previous. Now they're completely capitulating. We're your servants. Why would you beat your servants? Why would you make it hard on us? Pharaoh, we're your people. It's a horrendous scene. And so that's why when Moses comes to the end there in verse 22 and 23, the word he actually says to Lord is, why have you brought this evil upon your people? The NIV softens it by saying trouble. Now, from a human level, it's clear why they'd respond this way. Why Israelites and Moses are so upset. God sent Moses and Aaron to deliver. But not only is deliverance delayed, but affliction and oppression is increased. So Moses says, you have not rescued this people. See, Moses knew the delay was coming. But in the midst of deliverance delayed, it was so hard to see how any good could come. It's so easy to slip into impatience and into discontent. And perhaps nobody has written better on this topic of contentment than the Puritans. Uh, many English Puritans wrote about patience and contentment in the Christian life. And for them, this would have been such an important topic because remember what the English Puritans were trying to do was to purify the worship of the church and many suffered greatly. You've heard of Bloody Mary in your history classes? Well, Bloody Mary burned 300 Puritan ministers at the stake. So they knew what it was about to be those seeking to live contented lives in the midst of deep, strong suffering and despair. Waves of persecution would claim Puritan lives. Well, one of them was commenting on Hebrews 6.12, which says that our assurance of hope is to be found through faith and patience. That's what Hebrews 6.12 says. That's our hope, our assurance is found through ongoing, persevering faith and patience. And then he wrote this. No sin is so devilish as the sin of impatience. There is not any sin which strikes more at all the attributes of God than this, than impatience. Well, why? Because it questions God's character. It questions his plan. Maybe you aren't good after all. Why have you done this evil to this people? Another Puritan helps explain why discontent is, is such a problem because it's the first link in a chain. Discontent quickly gives way to impatience and impatience to murmuring against God. The discontented complainer charges God with folly. This is Thomas Watson in his wonderful book, The Art of Divine Contentment. He goes on, The murmurer maintains that he deserves better from God, that God might have been wiser and a better God. Our murmuring, is the devil's music. He loves to fish in those troubled waters. Well, here we see, at a human level, very explainable. Deliverance has been delayed. Suffering has been increased. The human response makes sense to respond with impatience, with discontent, with murmuring. They went from worshiping God to being completely discouraged by him. And friends, we dare not pretend that we aren't subject to the same pattern. I mean, do we not join in the chorus of discontent 
when we experience delays. I mean, if you're anything like me, silly traffic delays can set me off. Have you ever had a loud conversation with your windshield? I mean, that guy over there who can't merge isn't hearing you. It doesn't matter how brashly I say, merging is not rocket surgery, your job is to speed up. It's just a conversation with my windshield. Or maybe it's not traffic for you. Maybe there are certain people, there's certain personalities with people, and they just grind on you. Maybe it's even an area of their life where they need sanctification. Maybe it's a sin issue in their life, and they just need to grow, and it needs to be addressed. Well, remember, friends, Paul would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, kind to everyone, patiently enduring evil. Or Peter, he says the same thing, 1 Peter 4, 8, that love covers a multitude of sins. So we understand emotionally why Israel and Moses are so upset. But it's so easy for us to get upset when the calling upon us as Christians is to endure patiently evil, to let love cover a multitude of sins, which is why Jonathan Edwards says, when you become frustrated or impatient with somebody, to ask yourself this question, has your enemy been more base, more unreasonable, more ungrateful than you have been to the high and holy one? See, maybe it's not people who lead to your discontent and impatience. Maybe it's God. What I mean is, maybe it's the trials of life. Maybe implicitly, if not explicitly, you are impatient with God, with how he has delayed, with how he continues to delay the plans for your life, for how his delay is extending your suffering. I know many in this room have done like I have done and have held their spouse's hand in hospital rooms or vice versa. I know many in this room have walked through long seasons of deep, dark trials. And it's easy in those seasons. It's tempting to think that deliverance is delayed and so better to sit in a doubting discontent. But friends, in in those seasons especially that you need God's people marked off in a particular place to come around you, to walk with you, sometimes just to say, I'm praying. And other times to do what we did in the song we sang earlier, to call you to speak to your soul. Speak the words of the song we sang. Lord, from sorrows deep I call, when my hope is shaken, torn and ruined from the fall. Hear my desperation. For so long I've pled and prayed, God, come to my rescue. But even so, the thorn remains. Cause this heart to praise you. We need those friends who will come to us and say, speak to your soul, sing to your soul, oh my soul, put your hope in God, my help, my rock, I will praise him. Sing through the raging storm that you're still my God, my salvation. See friends, we need those reminders from others that when God's deliverance is delayed, it does not mean that his redemption is ruined. Well, here in our passage, It is God himself who will come to Moses and seek to encourage him, even though his deliverance is delayed. This is our last point, confirmation of the sent. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them and gave, uh, to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves of them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with a mighty axe of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give you possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because their discouragement and harsh labor. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? See, though Israel and Moses had been derailed by deliverance delayed, in this section, God pulls the veil back ever so slightly to explain why delay is sometimes part of God's plan. It's one of those rare places in the Bible where if you look closely, God gives you a glimpse into his plan and why it happens this way. But in keeping with our theme of delay, before I show it to you, I'm going to delay and explain the structure of this chapter. Because what happens is, you're seeing this story, right? We're reading this story, makes perfect sense. But then all of a sudden, right there in verse 13, all the way down through verse 27, there's this pause, and you get this weird kind of sort of partial genealogy, and it tells about Moses and Aaron. It actually, it begins by saying Moses and Aaron, and if you look at the very end there, verse 27, it says, and this is the same, Moses and Aaron. Uh, the NIV ruins it, actually. It's, it's Moses and Aaron, Aaron and Moses. It's intentionally a bookend. It's showing you this is one whole section together. But why? What purpose does it serve? Well, I, you should see the commentaries. They, they go all over the place. On the one hand, it, it's just proving that Moses really is a Levite, and so he, he can serve the people in this way. Remember, he was raised by Pharaoh, his daughter at least, and so that's part of it. Another part of it is certainly to, to assure that Aaron is also qualified, that they're brothers from the tribe of Levi. It's a weird telescope thing. If you do the dates and the math, it does not work out. Uh, so, so it's intentionally this kind of telescoped genealogy just to prove who Moses and Aaron are. So why put it there? Well, I think it's because God is having us delay the story just a little bit longer. Because as the story goes on, it picks up immediately down there, verse 28. Look with me. See how the story continues from where we saw it. Verse 28, now, when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, everything I tell you. It's exactly what he said above. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Again, same thing. Just repeating. This is where we're at. Now look at 7, 1 through 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. 
You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So the story continues right on. And the story is just this continued message that it's time to go. That's what verse 1 said. It's right there now. Now go. You see what he said? After everything has gone into the toilet, after the people are even worse off than they were before, suffering has been increased, Moses says, why have you done this evil? And God, in his kindness and graciousness, doesn't rebuke him, but instead he says, now. Now is the time. Now. After Pharaoh has ramped up. Now you will see. I chose to do it this way for a specific purpose, that now you will see. And particularly, God goes on there in those first verses of chapter 6 to say, and I'm showing you something I didn't show Abraham. He said, he knew me as El Shaddai, right? God Almighty, but he didn't know me as Yahweh. Well, the word Yahweh is used there in the Old Testament. What is happening here? It's specifically God saying, now I'm going to show you that I am the God who is the Redeemer and the Judge. And you can't learn that apart from me showing it to you. That's the point of the story. And that's why I say we're getting just a peek behind the veil, as it were, of why it is God does things this way. Look again at verse 6 through 8 of chapter 6. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Four things that Moses is told that they will learn only by God showing them. They will learn that God is the God who delivers and redeems his people, who judges those who oppress them, and who brings his people into his presence. Those four things is what Israel and all Christians need to know, but we can only know them by being those who live in a fallen world. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine for a moment that a world with no sin, no suffering, no sorrow, no sadness existed. What could you know about God? Well, you'd know he's God Almighty, very much like Abraham knew. He's God Almighty. You might know he's loving, but you wouldn't know him as Redeemer because there's no one to redeem. You wouldn't know him as Judge for there was no sin to judge. In other words, God says, then you will know only when I show you. You see, that's the whole point. Now, God says, now I will show you so that you may know. See, contrary to some popular notions, God didn't put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden as the grand what if. No. God chose to make this world to display himself as redeemer and deliverer, which means God had to make a world 
that though was good, was capable of falling, so he could display himself as deliverer and redeemer. I know those things, they, they mess with our minds, and we don't know how to quite put those pieces together. But theologians have long used a phrase to help explain this. That's why they call it the Ophelix culpa, the, the happy fall, the fortunate fall. What they're saying is apart from the fallen, broken, sin-stained world, look at what we wouldn't know about God. We wouldn't know his patience, his mercy, his long-suffering, his just judgment. That's why God says to Moses, now I will show you so that you will know. It is from beholding God's mighty acts of deliverance and redemption that they will receive the experiential knowledge they need. God's deliverance delayed served to be deliverance displayed. And in fact, here in the book of Exodus, we will see that God's continued delay in hardening Pharaoh's hearts to stretch out his judgment over him actually serves his missionary purpose. I don't know if you caught it there. It was at the, the beginning there of chapter 7 in verse 5. It said, as the Egyptians and the Egyptians, when I do all these things, when I harden his heart and I, I stretch out my judgment, 7-5, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring Israel out. God's purpose in delaying deliverance is missionary, which is why Exodus 12-38 says that they went up a mixed multitude. Some others were added to the sun. That's the point. And this mixed multitude comes up from Egypt, seeing the suffering of the plagues. And yet that suffering led them to trust in the Lord for salvation. So see, friends, maybe you're here this morning and you're visiting with us, and maybe you're not a Christian. I hope you see what this passage is trying to show us. That part of God's including evil and suffering in his plan was to drive us to him. As one author has said, we are such sinful, silly, distractible creatures who inevitably major on what is minor if suffering doesn't stop us. See, we just have this intuitive understanding that suffering is something broken. It just shows us. I mean, I met the most secular Portlander in the world. They still will just complain there's something wrong and broken about suffering. And God says, yes, exactly right. It's meant to be a beacon calling out to you to look. Suffering is the frame through which God displays his mighty acts of redemption. So friends, God's deliverance delayed does not mean his redemption is ruined. Quite the contrary. It means that God is ensuring his glory and redemption is displayed. So finally, for Christians, we see this ever so much clearer in the cross. The cross, which was plan A. The cross, which Jesus endured, said, for the joy set before him, he despised the shame, and he endured the cross. Why? For the purpose of completing what was done all the way back here in Exodus. What was the fourth thing God said? To bring you to me. I will deliver you and redeem you and judge your enemies, and you will be my people, and I will be your God who is with you. That's why Jesus did what he did to bring us back, to bring back the original plan of God with his people, restoring his presence to us. As with Israel in our passage, though, we are those between the advents. We are those awaiting our final redemption. 
And so in the meantime, suffering serves to drive our eyes and cause us to hope in heaven, to look beyond this world, to look to our future glorious home with him. And his little wonderful book on suffering, Mark Talbot's book, When the Stars Disappear, he helps us see this so clearly, how God uses deliverance delayed to cause us to look and live for him when he writes this. God's apparent delay in fulfilling his promises refines our hopes. We lift our heads and see God's rewards from afar as our earthly hope dies. Our suffering inclines us to reorient our hopes towards the consummation. So you see, friends, God's deliverance delayed did not mean his redemption was ruined. It meant that through the person and work of Christ, suffering on the cross, rising again to new life so that all those who repent and trust in him can partake of forgiveness of God and be in his presence. For them, God's deliverance delayed is God's deliverance displayed. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for even hard parts of your word that remind us of the fallenness and brokenness of life. And we pray that you would help us to be those who hold up each other's hands in the midst of those seasons and who see deliverance delayed as driving us to look to you and to our future hope with you. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.